United States. There are thousands of these people from the American Revolution to present day that don't get the notoriety we think of because movies were not made about them or not many books were written, although for a few of them in recent years, they have basically been books that have been published about them, especially for young people, so I'm glad to hear that. So I have a few that I wanted to speak about. Sure. Are you are you on a, a cell phone? Am I on a cell phone? No, I'm on a land phone. Okay, I want to make sure the audience can hear you clearly. Okay, uh, proceed. Okay. Um, let me start with the first person. It, he was referred to as Pedro Francisco. And to uh, many of the people that uh, he grew up with in the early years, they referred to him as Peter. And... Uh, what is ironic is that he had been kidnapped or taken from uh, one of the islands in the Portuguese Azores, Terceira. And as a result of that, he was actually dropped off by this crew on this ship. So they had left the Portuguese Azores and traveled to Virginia to uh, what we referred to as City Point. And they dropped him off, and he wound up in the poorhouse and, uh, until finally he was taken out of the poorhouse, and he wound up, he was all at five years of age when he was kidnapped, but he looked much older because he was very large for his size. And he wound up, as a result of that, being taken as an indentured servant by Judge Anthony Winston. Judge Anthony Winston uh, in Virginia happened to be the uncle of Patrick Henry. So this young man gets an education about freedom by being a, a indentured servant uh, to Patrick Henry's uncle and meeting a lot of famous people as he grows older. And what's interesting is one of the people that he winds up waiting on as he gets older, because he is a good size, uh, is Patrick Henry, who becomes a good friend of his. And so when people visit Judge Anthony Winston, some of the people that he waits on or serves is Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, George Washington. It's a who's who of the founding fathers, including Patrick Henry. And what happens is he winds up working, uh, entertaining during the dinner hour, singing songs in Portuguese, and then he winds up waiting on the tables, and then during the day he is a blacksmith, and he also works on the tobacco plantation. So his day is fairly filled as an indentured, more like a slave than anything else. And so he grows very large, very, very large, and exceptionally strong. And uh, I don't know if any of the people in the audience might want to guess at his size, but books have been written about him. And at 16 years of age, he was referred to as uh, the boy giant. During the American Revolution, the British called him the American Samson, or the Virginia Hercules, um, or the Virginia Giant. There was even a price on his head for capture or death by Colonel Ben Astry Talton because he had actually fought Talton in several different engagements. And he was well known by the British as an adversary. And just to give you an idea ahead of his size, at 16 years of age, he was six foot six. He was 260 pounds, and he was just mammoth in regard to his strength. And 
he wound up, as a result of it, asking if he could join the American Revolution and to join one of the regiments, one of the Virginia regiments. And his owner, uh, Judge Winston, basically had said to him, you're kind of young. Why don't you wait another year? So he waited another year. And the reason he wanted to join was because he had heard Patrick Henry give his famous speech in 17... You know, I'm, I'm sorry, but I think you might have to call again because you're coming in and out to the degree where I don't think you're being heard. Okay, is this, is this any better? Yes. Yes, much better. Okay, so let me, let me do it this way. He was six foot six, 260 pounds, and as a result of that, he wound up wanting to fight in the American Revolution at age 16, hoping that he would get his freedom. The end result was that Judge Anthony Winston, who actually loved him like a son, had him wait a year. And he wound up the following year in 1776, after listening to Patrick Henry, listening to his famous speech in Richmond in 1775, he joins a Virginia regiment. And from that point on, he becomes a living legend during the period from 1776 to 1781. Now, what's interesting about him is that he is involved in fighting in close to about a dozen different battles during the American Revolution. And he is wounded six times, and he's left for dead twice, and then he's nursed back to health. And one of the battles that he fought was a very unique battle that most people do not know very much about because it was fought at night. And this was the Battle of Stony Point. Under, Judge, uh, under General Anthony Wayne. So what happened during this particular battle was that the Americans wanted to make a surprise attack against the British at Fort Stony Point, which was on the Hudson River, and take the fort and get the British out. So the end result was very simply, they needed men to volunteer. Men had to volunteer and actually risk their lives by breaking through the British lines and actually out in the open. So they had 20 men volunteer, 10 men from the south of the fort, 10 men from the north of the fort, and they had to march in and open up some of the devices that they had, which were basically obstacles called abati. And the first to volunteer was Peter Francisco. Now, Peter Francisco had an axe with him, and he had a musket. And in one hand, he took the axe and he separated the abati. He literally made a swath all the way through to the, to the fort, and he became the third person into the fort. And there were rewards being offered to the first, second, and third men that come into the fort from each of this 10-man squad. And what's interesting is the squad had a special name, and it became a famous name in, in history, especially for the British. The squad was referred to as the Forlorn Hope, meaning that there was a desperate attempt at something, a battle or an engagement, with very little chance of success, and more than likely, death would ensue. He was wounded. He was severely wounded. He made it into the fort. He subdued several British soldiers, and he became the third man into the fort um, as a result of that. And this was only one instance of his exceptional bravery. 
What is interesting is that Washington, after the war was over, was asked about Peter Francisco. And what Washington had said when asked about him, because he was very famous, he had basically said in two battles, he had actually turned the tide for the Americans against the British. And to Washington, he believed that Francisco helped to win the American Revolution for the Americans, almost like a one-man army. And that's how he described him. In one battle, uh, the Battle of Camden, South Carolina, the British had literally subdued the American position. The Americans were forced to retreat. Peter was in the artillery. He did not want the British to get his cannon that he was in charge of, that particular crew. So he unhitches the cannon barrel from the carriage. He picks up the cannon barrel, and he puts it on his shoulder. And he staggers off the battlefield carrying this six-pounder cannon. Now, you have to keep in mind that a six-pounder cannon weighed 1,100 pounds. And he marched off the battlefield, making sure the cannon barrel would stay in American hands. In 1976, the United States government created four stamps to honor four Americans during the bicentennial. And one of them was Peter Francisco. And on this picture that they have on the stamp, they have this huge soldier. And on his shoulder is a six-pounder cannon barrel to honor just this young man. At the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, he was so brave, but he was in the cavalry and he had a short sword. Peter was over 6'6", so he needed a sword that would be adequate because of his height on, on horseback. And so his best friend, who he was wounded with, and wound up being given a doctor for treatment, as his friend was, the Marquis de Lafayette, actually designed a sword for Peter Francisco. Lafayette met with George Washington and told Washington that Peter needs a large sword in order for him to be a member of the Dragoons, which was cavalry back then. Mm -hmm. So Washington pays for a sword to be made that is 20 pounds, and the sword is five feet long. And during the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, according to legend, Peter Francisco subdued 11 British soldiers in single-hand combat with that sword before he was brought down off his horse and left for dead, but eventually recovered. This is the legend of Peter Francisco. And he just, he was so greatly honored, not just by Washington and others, but two presidents, including George Washington. He was one, but there was another president who idolized this hero. And this president actually wound up becoming a soldier in the American Revolution. James Monroe? His name, close. His name was Andrew Jackson. Oh, all right. All right. Jackson's father had been killed. Jackson's brother had been killed during the war. And as a result, his mother and he and his younger brother were taken prisoners. So the end result, and Monroe knew of, Jack, of uh, Peter Francisco. He, uh, he idolized him like Washington did. And so as a result... Uh, when Peter Francisco died in 1831, the president of the United States was Andrew Jackson, who idolized him. And he was so famous in regard to his exploits all the way to Yorktown that the end result was that Virginia created a special day 
March 15th, which was the anniversary of the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. And that is known in Virginia as Peter Francisco Day. Now, what's interesting about Peter Francisco was that during the war, he became so famous, he even not only served in the, in the uh, cavalry and served in the um, uh, infantry and the artillery, but he also, after recuperating from a serious wound after Guilford Courthouse, he agreed to scout the area for Washington in parts of Virginia and keeping an eye on the British. And so the end result was he wound up going to a tavern called Ward's Tavern. And he goes into the tavern, and there are British soldiers there, Talton's Legion, yeah. British regiment under Colonel Benastri Talton. And he goes in there, and in a few minutes they recognize who he is by his size. And the end result is they try to subdue him, and he goes and fights with them outside. Nine British soldiers try to take Peter Francisco. He kills three, he wounds three, and three run away, and he takes all nine horses, and he confiscates them. And this is known as the Battle of Ward's Tavern. If you go to Independence Hall uh, in Pennsylvania, and you go up to the second floor, and you look at in Independence Hall in regard to the... Um, a mural that they have of all these paintings. Yep. In the center right is the painting of Peter Francisco. Wow. And it shows him defeating nine British soldiers in single-handed combat, waving his sword. And it's all hand-painted in oils. And toward the end of the war, in order to instill nationalism, what Washington and the other officers did was they had silk tapestries made identical to the actual painting on the wall on the second story at Independence Hall. They took these and almost all rebel homes loyal to the Continental Congress and to General Washington had them frame them inside the houses. And he became literally a legend during this particular time. They all knew him, especially in Virginia and North Carolina. Peter lived until 1831, but he wanted to fight against the British in the War of 1812. And in the War of 1812 and 1814, there were people from Connecticut and other parts of New England who wanted to sue for peace because their trade was basically being destroyed because of the Embargo Act. And so the end result was they had the drawing of Peter Francisco, the painting that was done, they made it into a steel engraving identical to the original painting, and they wound up circulating these with Peter doing speaking engagements to get Americans to support General Madison, who was his friend, and continue against the British. Uh, and that was one year later when it was all over and the Treaty of Ghent had already been signed and the Battle of New Orleans actually had taken place in 1815 with the war ending by 1814. And this is the legend of a man very, very few people know very much about. And yet, he was a man, he was the idol of George Washington, and he was the idol of Andrew Jackson. 
and yet we don't know his name to this very day. Well, he was on a postage stamp, so that's pretty good. Yeah, but that was 1976, so when... 200 years. Well, that was the bicentennial, and we got the 250th anniversary coming up in 2025, so hopefully they'll have another stamp. <laughs> so what can you tell us about uh, the men that he fought at that tavern? Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Banaster Tarleton was... Uh, the officer of British Dragoons, and yep. I've read that he was probably guilty of some war crimes. Is that right? They referred to his nickname was the Butcher. Okay. That was Talton's nickname. And he said he did not really kill that many people, but there were many people who took, took testimony or gave testimony about some of the things that he had done, especially in the South right. um, during the war, which had shifted from the North into the Department of the South by 1778-79. And so they were greatly, greatly hated. When you watch the movie uh, The Patriot yep. with Mel Gibson, right. it it's a takeoff. It's a takeoff on Ben Estre Talton. His adversary is a Colonel Tavington, I think he refers to him as. And it's a takeoff on Ben Estre Talton, who is not killed during the American Revolutionary War, but winds up going back to England. And he was a very close friend, Talton, uh, with the Prince of Wales, who would later become George the Fourth. Whoa. <laughs> So he was not punished or penalized um, for anything like that. And I guess, you know, what, what upset me many years ago is I had completed a script um, on his story, and it was basically an action-packed scene. And I had contacted through a friend of mine uh, who ran uh, a lot of uh, elections in um, California, Southern California, and she uh, knew Arnold Schwarzenegger, and she had given Arnold Schwarzenegger the script, and I had given him, uh, given her the script along with a letter as to why he should do this uh, movie or whatever, and you got to remember, we're going back years, and she had contacted me, and she said he doesn't want to do any more movies, he has political ambition, oh, no. and he wants to be governor of the state of California. I think he would have been better off if he was basically Peter Francisco because right. it was an American revolutionary hero like the one he portrayed with Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> right. Well, I bet you there's not going to be a stamp of uh, Governor Schwarzenegger. No, unfortunately maybe. for him. Yeah. Well, yeah. May maybe in, in the Kennedy Library. Well, <laughs> I don't even think so, although they're on good speaking terms. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you. You know, they probably need some of the money. He's got more money than the Kennedys, you know. Well, supposedly, from what I understand, um, you know, he he has good relationships with the family, his family, at that end of it. I'm glad to hear that. Um, but just to, to end on Peter Francisco, no bullet could take his life. He had been wounded so many times and the rest of it, and he survived. And he just, everybody would come by to see him because he was so famous. And, and he wound up uh, with an attack of appendicitis. And that's how he died in 1831. Oh, no. Surgery was not so great then. No, and it, it burst. So by the time they were getting him, you know, some help, it was basically too late for him. And he was buried when they buried him um, in, the sac uh, in the cemetery. Thousands and thousands of people came to the uh, orations and to the burial um, to see him buried uh, with great honor, and they had the band, and they had the army there, the Virginia militia, and uh, 
you know, the only per- person that wasn't there and he wanted to be, but he couldn't make it, was Andrew Jackson. He wanted to be there. Now, that, when you said that he was the hero of two presidents, uh, there was no um, Washington and, and Andrew Jackson uh, couldn't have possibly known each other. Or, yeah, Andrew Jackson was a very young man during the American Revolution. Right. But not necessarily in talking terms with the, uh, what well, eventually was the President of the United States. No. Yes. But what is interesting is keep in mind that Andrew Jackson was a soldier in the American Revolutionary War. And his hatred towards the British because of the passing, the deaths of family members, made him so bitter. And that was part of what his attitude was towards the British regarding the Battle of New Orleans. He did not want to give them any quarter right? because oh. of his hatred, which hadn't, which hadn't simmered since 1778. Now, in regard to Jackson, I mean, Jackson... He knew the legend of Washington. He did not. Washington died in December 1799, Jackson in 1845. So there was no personal relationship, so to speak. Uh, and the bottom line is that uh, both men idolized this immigrant who came from the Portuguese Azores and who became an American. That was his dream, to be an American, and he became an American, and he fought for this country at one of the most important times in our history yep. for yes, our freedom and for in the American Revolution. So I just think he's, you know, number one of the ones that we should know a little bit more about. Yeah, well, he was an immigrant. He came semi-voluntarily because he was kidnapped. Yeah. And uh, I guess he was... Semi. <laughs> how do you say... How do you... Uh, what do you make that leap? If... He was kidnapped from the... the yeah, but uh, that doesn't make him semi-voluntarily. Well, he, he was only five years old. He made old. the best of it, I would say. He made the best of it. He, well, that's the thing that uh, I think uh, a lot of immigrants today are come in and they're... I don't think they have the right same attitude as Peter Francisco and no. come to fight for the American Revolution or whatever. Well, wait a second. You got a Cuban exiles fought in the Vietnam War. Oh yeah, no, no. I'm saying those are fine, but I think a lot. I got to pass that today, up. I got to defend, you know, our, yeah, our brethren here. A lot of the see, uh, Ed was born in Cuba. I was born here, and I'm defending the cause. You no, know, what but I'm saying a lot of <laughs> these new immigrants are not coming to become American. This they're, is very they're coming true. Coming waving their flags. Absolutely. And they're not becoming American. And running racket on Medicare and Medicaid. You have to remember one thing about Peter Francisco. He spoke very little English. All the English that he had learned, because he spoke Portuguese. And so um, he wound up learning from Judge Winston and from uh, Patrick Henry. And then when he came back, when the war was over... After Yorktown, he just came back to the plantation, and uh, he already had in mind to marry uh, a woman from a fairly well-to-do family, but he was a a major hero, and they all vouched for his character. And the end result was he wound up going to a school, and in the school, like the little red schoolhouse type of thing, uh, you had young kids in there who were basically seven, eight, nine, ten years of age, sure. and there you have Peter Francisco, uh, who is in his 30s and uh, late 20s, and he's six foot six, and he's sitting down, and he towers over all of them, well, and he winds up with the teacher not only learning the lessons during the day, but he actually meets with the teacher at night to be tutored and to learn more, as much as he can, to learn the language. Yep and basically uh, conform to what he believes will be important and also what his future wife's family would expect. 
Yeah, that's the best way to learn the language. Yes. So what's practice. love got to do with it? Practice, practice. <laughs> <laughs> practice, practice, practice. But, you know, all these uh, old little red schoolhouses were one room, and there would be, uh, you know, kids five years old or to 18 years old. Yes, at different, all different ages, yeah. all sitting together. Right. And then after World War II, a lot of American colleges and universities had uh, veterans on the GI Bill, and they were, you know, a few years older than the average college student. Right. Now, you know, they were some they were living in Quonset huts in uh, some universities, temporary student housing. Right. Correct. That's great. Any other questions on on Peter Francisco before I get to number no. 2? No, that's really No, number 2. Go for number 2. <laughs> well, we got to give equal time to the ladies. So I chose a lady who I think deserves a lot of recognition. And what upsets me is the fact that in many American history textbooks, they have a, a photo of her and a caption. And that's where it all ends. Her name was Mary Edwards Walker. And what's interesting is that she was the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor. Now, there are more than 10,000 men, or close to 10,000 men, who received the Medal of Honor since the Civil War, since 1862, when it was created by Congress. But only one woman since the Civil War ever received the Medal of Honor, and it is Mary Walker, Mary Edwards Walker. Now, what's interesting about her was she was a doctor. She was a doctor and a surgeon, and she went to school, and when she had gone to school, she did very, very well, and she wound up, ironically, getting into Syracuse Medical College. She was the only woman in her class. Mm -hmm. She wasn't the first woman to become a doctor. Elizabeth Blackwell actually was. She uh, graduated from Hobart in 1849, Hobart College. But Mary was one of the few women who did become a doctor. Mm -hmm. And she wound up, after getting her degree, she opened a practice, and uh, she became very, very outspoken about the need for medical changes. Now, she came up with analysis that is just mind-blowing. Now, she graduated in the 1850s, and then she wound up becoming friendly um, with a woman who was a publisher of a magazine in New York, and it was a woman's magazine called The Sybil. And she wound up writing articles in the magazine, The Sybil. But the articles had nothing to do with about women's rights or anything like that. She was writing articles as a doctor in regard to medical practices and what she would recommend. By 1857, she had written articles, and one of them was the fact she claimed that smoking tobacco causes cancer. <laughs> Keep in mind, it's, it's 1857. Mm -hmm. She writes another article about the fact that because of the way women dress with corsets, they cut into the women's waist and therefore restrict the women in regard to breathing, and that influences the circulation regarding blood. Right. So she writes a whole article on this, and she even designs a special type of barrel in which a person could get in it with special equipment inside. And what you literally have is a kind of 1850s model jacuzzi, and this is for women 
to basically help with their circulation. And then she becomes very outspoken that women should not wear corsets that are too restrictive. And she is part of a movement which very few people know about to this day, and it's called the Dress Reform Movement. And she is very, very outspoken. When the Civil War develops, she gets very upset because of the number of lives that have been wasted on both sides. And so the end result is she puts in to become a surgeon. Yep. And she is refused because she's a woman. And finally, even though they won't really acknowledge her as a contract surgeon, she's treated more like a nurse, even though she has her Syracuse medical degree. So during the war, especially in 1861, she winds up at the Battle of Bull Run, Manassas Junction, and she's actually giving treatment, medical treatment, to Union soldiers that had been wounded or were dying. Now, from 1861 through to 1864, she has been from battlefield to battlefield giving medical aid. I'm talking about the first Battle of Bull Run, the second Battle of Bull Run, the Battle of Chickamauga, yep. Chattanooga, Fredericksburg. Yep. She was there with her doctor's kit giving medical aid and attention. At the Battle of Chickamauga, which is... A what happens, it's just fascinating. She winds up giving aid, especially to several women uh, who were Southerners. And one of the women was actually helping to take a bullet out of her husband, who had been shot. He was a Confederate soldier. And she assisted, and she did that to help the woman. Well, she eventually was surrounded by Confederate soldiers on horseback, and she was arrested. And she was brought to trial by the Confederate Army, and she was charged with the crime of treason against the Confederacy. So she was taken, after standing trial, to Richmond, where she stayed in a prison there called Castle Thunder. And she was in that prison for four months. And the judgment of the military court was that she was to be taken out and she was to be executed as a spy. Hmm. Just before she was executed, word was received of her capture and what had happened, and arrangements were made by several Union generals who got in touch with General Braxton Bragg, a Confederate general, and they wound up doing a swap they swapped a colonel who was a doctor for the Confederacy for Mary Walker, who was a doctor for the Union Army, even though she wasn't granted that full title, and she was released. After the war in 1866, she went to the President of the United States by invitation. Andrew Johnson had given her the Congressional Medal of Honor, which was recommended, heavily recommended, by two Union generals, William Tecumseh Sherman, and the other was George Thomas, known as the Rock of Chickamauga. Yeah, those guys were the ones fighting out there in Tennessee. Yes, that's where it took place. Yep. You know, and she wound up, she received the medal, she was given a 
honorary title because they couldn't give her a, a title of rank because it was not permitted in military regs, so she was called Major Mary. And the end result was uh, when the war was over, she was so famous and, and speaking out again for dress reform and medical issues that she was invited to England mm -hmm. to speak in London and to also to Paris to speak there as well in France. She became so well known and liked that she was on the front cover of major newspapers like Puck and the London Times. And in, in one of them, she actually is dressed in a uniform because she created a special uniform so she could operate surgically uh, that looks like an American flag. And she becomes a major celebrity. When she returns after a year or two, she is accorded honors to the point where there are dinners and celebrations given in her, in her honor because of what she did during the war. And so in 1869, two women are getting together to create a national organization for women. One of them is Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and the other is Lucy Mott. And they ask Mary Walker to join them. And while Elizabeth Cady Stanton is the head of the organization, and she does speaking engagements, people are demanding to hear from Mary Walker. They want to know about her war exploits, her wartime exploits, and what it was like at the front during the war. But she wants to speak not about that. She wants to speak about women's rights, but she also wants to t speak about medical issues that women especially should be aware of. So the end result is Mary has already created an outfit. She did that during the Civil War. She was a supporter of Amelia Bloomer and the Bloomer outfits. Yep. And she wound up having it. What the Bloomer outfit is is basically a pair of pants that are underneath a skirt, and then she covered it with a tunic, a Civil War blouse uh, jacket, and then she had a little kepi, a Civil War hat. And on her left side, she had her Medal of Honor. And so she wound up with this special outfit, which was more masculine than anything else. And the end result was she basically was pushed out of the Women's National Suffrage Association because she felt that they had not gone far enough, and they thought that she was maybe a little radical. She felt that because the Constitution does not grant women the right to vote, that women can vote because if the Constitution does not deny women the right to vote, then therefore they have the right to vote. That was her analysis. Well, that was something that was determined by the states. Yes, and she wound up going to each of the state legislatures in, the, in some of the major cities like New York and so on, and she demanded that something should be done in a petition, and she would get loads of these petitions on the state level uh, to basically bombard members of uh, houses yeah. to pass a law that would actually do that. Some of the western states, I think maybe Wyoming and yes. Montana, I'm not sure. Uh, Wyoming gave, was the first. Yeah, they gave women the right to vote, if nothing else, to attract them to come out there. Yes, because they had a hard time getting women to come come west because of the bitter conditions, especially the weather conditions, not to mention other issues. But uh, Wyoming did give women the right to vote in 1869, and they were the first. And uh, it took years for the other states to basically say, okay, we'll do the same thing. Well, Wyoming's uh, congressman now is 
Liz Cheney, a woman. So. Well, the, um, something I, I discovered here in Florida, I went to a regatta up in, uh, my God, uh, Indian River area, and there was a woman there was elected way before. She was the first woman, had to have been the first woman elected in the United States. She was elected to the town council there. And it, there's a big historical marker on the town center. And uh, I know that women weren't allowed to vote back then, and yet she was elected. <laughs> and there she is in the town center. And it's a small little town right uh, right around Indian River. I don't think it's the town of Indian River. It might be. I'd have to do the research, but I took pictures of it. I read it. I couldn't believe it. I go, wait a second. Women weren't allowed to vote, and she was elected here. But and- you got to remember that a lot of the states, especially small towns and villages, wound up making their own rules and regulations, and the state really did not come in too hard to try to push them or to get them to conform by state law. They basically let a lot of them, left a lot of them alone. So it's kind of like the Jackie, uh, Jackie Robinson story. He wasn't necessarily the first black uh, person to play Major League Baseball. He just got the news. So uh, that's what happens in our history. A lot of the news is not reported as such. It's yes. reported after the fact. Yes, that's correct. And what's interesting about, uh, just getting back to Mary Walker, what is interesting is the fact that uh, she not only had her Congressional Medal of Honor that she would wear, but in 1905, Congress created a replacement Congressional Medal, which the color of the ribbon and the rest of it, including the medal itself, is very much like the medal today. And she wore both of them. So she wore two Congressional Medals of Honor, not even being recognized by men for having one. And the end result was that Congress in 1916, at the time of Woodrow Wilson, uh, had come up with a list to try to stop paying people who receive the Medal of Honor a stipend. So for each person who received the Medal of Honor, Congress had created a stipend in which a certain amount of money would be given to them because of their bravery. So in 1917, a year after, they wound up creating a list. You'll get a kick out of this. They created a list of 911 men and one woman whose medal would be rescinded and they would no longer receive the stipend. And since it was all these men, 910 of them, and one woman, you know who the woman was, it was Mary Walker. So ironically, here is the only woman to receive a Congressional Medal of Honor. And in 1917, as we're getting involved in World War and the Great War, uh, we're taking the medal and the stipend away from her. And another person on that list was Buffalo Bill Cody, because Buffalo Bill had actually received the Congressional Medal of Honor, and they were rescinding his as well. So Why were they rescinding him? Yeah, they were basically saying he's off the rolls as a recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor. He will not receive the um, stipend, and by law... According to this 1917 act, they could not wear the Congressional Medal of Honor, and if they did, they would be arrested. Whoa. you believe this? That's pretty uh, harsh. I knew Woodrow Wilson was a progressive, but that's pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what happened was, <laughs> you'll get a kick out of this. What happens was they sent U.S. Marshals to her house in Oswego, New York. Well, why did they do that? Why did they take it away? What? Well, they, their attitude was, you want to keep the medal fine, but just don't wear it. Now, Mary, you know, she wore the medal. She was proud of the fact that she was right. given the medal, and she refused to basically put it in the drawer and, you know, just say, that's it. 
The marshals came to her house and started banging on the door. Banging hard. I mean hard on that door. And she yells out, you know, who is it? What do you want? And we're U.S. Marshals, and we want you to open the door, uh, and we want you to, you know, give us your medal uh, because you have violated the law in regard to wearing it since you're on the list in which the medal no longer belongs to you. Mm. So she turns around, she goes into her drawer, her bureau chest, and she takes out a Colt Model 1860 revolver, and she fires two shots high up on the door. And she yells, next one's going to be a lot lower. Well, the marshals run to get away from her. And the end result is she yells out, you'll have to pry this medal from my dying hand. Cold, dead hands. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what she said. And the end result was she continued to fight to get women the right to vote. Mm -hmm. And even though the organizations did not have her as a member, and in 1919, she had passed away. Mm. What did, you, did you just say 1919? Yeah, 1919, just before they got it. she had passed away. A year later, right. the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920 that gave women the right to vote. Right. Wow. She didn't live that extra year when she would have seen all the work that she had done reach fruition where the the uh, amendment was passed to give women the right to vote. Yeah, well, I think, you know, feminists should uh, appreciate her gunmanship and her marksmanship. <laughs> she thought she was Annie Oakley. Right, absolutely. Well, she should have fought for a woman's right to own She was also a Second Amendment advocate. Yes. I guess so. Yeah, ab absolutely, man. That's uh, Those are really spellbounding stories. You know, it's interesting. She has her a headstone in Oswego. And on the headstone, it has the uh, G.A.R. star um, and the, uh, the um, design. And all it says is Mary E. Walker, Medal of Honor, Surgeon, 52nd Ohio Infantry, Civil War. And then it has the dates, uh, birth and then 1919 when she died. And yet on top, at the top of the tombstone, uh, it's the emblem of the Congressional Medal of Honor. Oh, good. Oh, wow. And you yeah. said that was the GAR, the Grand Army of the Republic? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because she was a member. Right. She well, was a veteran. Great. Well, that's great. I, I'm reading a, a, a news alert from the Wall Street Journal. Trump, President Trump to award Tiger Woods Medal of Honor. Medal of Freedom. <laughs> no, it's a different medal. It's a presidential medal. Yes, it is. Not a... And it's also rare. It goes to civilians compared to the military, okay. which is the Congressional Medal. So for winning the Masters, he got the Medal of I Freedom? Don't know. I'm, I I, I, I just repeat this without comment. <laughs> do we have time for another, or do you want to... No, yes, we have ten more minutes, absolutely. All right, because there's loads of these people. One of them, his name was Samuel Drebin, and he was a Jewish-American. And according to General John Pershing, who was in charge of the uh, expedition in the Great War for the American Army, quote, he was the finest soldier and one of the bravest men I ever knew. Let me tell you about this guy. He was unbelievable. And 
when I say unbelievable, he, he lived in Poltava in the Ukraine. He did not. They were basically Cossacks were, were taking people in the ghettos, and what they were doing was they were conscripting them into the Russian army for the Tsar. Mm-hmm. He refused to fight for the Tsar because of all the pogroms, mm-hmm. uh, the killings and the maimings of people who were Jewish in these pogroms. So he left to the United States, and he couldn't support himself. And so he decided he would join the United States Army. So he joins the United States Army, and he winds up in 1897 into 98. He is heavily trained in the use of the Maxim machine gun, and he's an expert with it. And he is then sent, literally, to the Philippine Islands in 1898 during the Philippine insurrection, in which he distinguishes himself uh, with his soldiers. And the end result is he becomes a recipient of several medals, and then he's shipped to China the following year in 1899 in the Boxer Rebellion. And he saves the lives of Americans. He actually saves the lives of a lot of American men, women, and children who were in Beijing. Well, they were missionaries, I think. That was... Yes, and some of them were actually staff members, families of American ambassador and ministers yep. in the American legation. And the end result is he is hailed as this great hero. He returns to the United States, and he believes in the... And, and because he knows full well that this isn't something that existed in Russia under the Tsar, Nicholas II. And so the end result is he offers himself to fight for freedom in these countries in Central America. Now, you've got to remember, he is a Russian. He doesn't speak much Spanish, but he's learning quickly. And he winds up literally as a soldier and an expert with the machine gun fighting dictators in Honduras, then in Guatemala, then in Nicaragua, and then in Mexico, where he winds up with Francisco Madero, who's the president of Mexico, and he's given rank. And when General Pershing comes in to capture Pancho Villa, who Sam Drebin knew very, very well, and uh, he wound up meeting with Pershing, and he said, I will get Villa and I will bring him in. And he said, why would you do that? He said, because of this raid on Columbus, New Mexico, in which Americans, men, women, and children were killed. I will not, I will not accept that because this is like the pogroms in Russia with the Cossacks that were ordered to do this to the Jews. So he goes after Pancho Villa, but the American army is actually recalled because the United States in April has already declared war against Germany. Pershing meets with Sam Drebin and says to him, I want you to join the army, the American army, and come with me. And he does. He winds up with Pershing, and he becomes a soldier in one of the regiments in the war from 1917 through to 1918. He rises to the rank of sergeant, staff sergeant, and he receives numerous medals, and one of the highest the second highest, the Distinguished Service Cross, he is actually given. Now, what is interesting about his story is that in his story, he winds up actually idolized by a writer by the name of Damon Runyon. 
and he becomes a close friend of Damon Runyon, who thinks he's the greatest soldier that he had ever heard of. And so he writes stories about him. Now, in 1921, we are now opening up a grave site to the tomb of the unknown soldier. Now, the war ended in 1919, but in 1921, the marble uh, tomb actually that was created to house three bodies uh, now is in receipt of an American soldier who was killed during the Great War. And the pallbearers, two of them, Sergeant Alvin York, of which oh. there was a movie portrayed by Gary yep. Cooper, yep. and Sergeant Samuel Drebin. He was a pallbearer. Now what happened was, when the ceremony was over, the end result is news people started to crowd around General Pershing and asking him if the United States ever went to another war, a Second World War, ironic. Would you want Sergeant Alvin York to be the first to enroll, the first to join? And Pershing looked at him and said, Alvin York was a great American soldier, a real hero. But if I had my choice of the first man, the top man I would want, it would be Sam Drebin. He is the fightingest soldier I had ever seen and the bravest man that not only do I know, but many of the things he did during this war and other wars cannot even be written, cannot even be written down because it's just so heroic. It's hard to believe that someone could do that. He was an American legend and ironically wound up in 1925 at 46 years of age, uh, wound up with an ailment and they took him to the hospital and he had passed away. Jesus, incredible. The life, uh, life on their... Life in, as a hero, you prevail, but life as just a human, and you fail. Yes. Well, that happens to a lot of veterans today. They come back, and they have shell shock, and they have trouble dealing with civilian life. Yeah. Well, in this case, it's health. It's just simple disease. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's really uh, the, the irony, you know, The I've always said, you know, life is about lessons, not choices. The, the choices are, sorry, I got that backwards. Life's about choices, not lessons. The mm-hmm. lessons are in the irony and the God incidences of your choices. Right, right. Well, any questions that you have? I know we're c- closing soon, but any yeah, I like to know. I like that the audience would be interested in the four minutes we have left that you delve into a little bit of what went on in Russia under the Tsar and the persecution of Jews, and explain to us geogra- uh, geographically this area that you described where he was from. Ukraine. He, he was from the Ukraine, and the Ukraine was taken over control um, and wound up being controlled by the Tsar, Nicholas II. Now, Nicholas, uh, he ruled, he tried to rule as an autocrat, as an absolute monarch. And the problem was his personality and his decision-making were not the very best for that type of job. He, the Romanovs would systematically uh, killed off. There were many conspiracies against the Romanovs, dating back to Catherine the Great having her husband, who was Peter III, killed. And then uh, her uh, nephew, who wound up uh, as our Paul, he wound up being killed. 
And then the same thing was true uh, with Alexander II and, and an attempt on Alexander III, and, and it goes on and on. Nicholas was always afraid of this. And so the idea of assassination, especially after the assassination of Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary in 1914, um, and the end result was the area that Nicholas controlled was a huge area. It was referred to as the Russias. There's White Russia, which is Belarus, and then there's Black Russia, which we refer to as Russia. And it was a large area, um, and he basically um, needed the Cossacks to maintain law and order. And so his ministers were the ones who recommended, and he went along with it, the attacks on the pogroms, trying to get the Jews in the ghettos to basically not only fall into line, but actually have the Cossacks raid these pogroms, raid them in regard to any money, any, anything that they could take um, from these people. And there were many that were actually killed as a result of this. And so when he saw this, he saw this as an act of murder and uh, rape and basically destruction. And as far as he was concerned, this was the worst of mankind that he had ever seen. And he became an enemy to all of it. The Tsar never really spent a, spent a lot of time visiting different areas of his empire. What he did is he wound up going to St. Petersburg, to Moscow, back and forth, to the summer residence, and, and, and basically that was, that was the situation, summer and winter residences. He was very out of touch with what was going on. And the problem was that the Tsar was easily controlled by his wife, who was German. She was a German princess from Nonholtzerbst. And so Alexandra... Um, so was Catherine the Great. Catherine the Great goes back to the 1790s, and mm -hmm. she was the Empress of Russia um, and ruled alone after having her husband right. killed. And she was a German princess, too. She was a German princess, correct, from the same German kingdom. Yep which is ironic, twist of fate. So the end result is that um, Catherine, uh, not Catherine, but Alexandra, um, she worries about their son, and that is the preoccupation with the Tsar and his wife. The boy has hemophilia, and he has had several attacks, and they wind up running into a man who claims he could cure the boy of the attacks of hemophilia, and his name is Rasputin. Yep. So for several years, he not only controls the Tsarina, who controls the, emperor, the Tsar, and as a result, word gets out in the newspapers that basically destroy her, her reputation, and at the same time, destroying the Tsar as well. The Tsar's problem was he liked these campaigns going to war. He liked the glory. And just a few years before, in the Russo-Japanese War from 1904 to 1905, Russia had lost the war to the Japanese in which the Russian Navy was destroyed. Yep. And the Russian infantry was also destroyed. And so as a result of it, they sued for peace. And the man who actually helped to create the treaty that ended the war was the Treaty of Portsmouth, was Theodore Roosevelt. Yep. He actually mediated it. And they sued for peace. And he won a Nobel Peace Prize for yes, it. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. So some and American presidents got the Nobel Peace Prize the old-fashioned way. Yeah. They earned it. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, that that definitely ends our show for the day. It's 8 o'clock, so I can't thank you enough. Thank you for filling in. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope your listeners actually had a good time. You bet. And uh, we also hope that here on Statues and Story, Adam heard that he now has competition for this show. No competition. I wouldn't compete against my cousin. All right. It's good to have a backup. It's good to have a backup of equal stature. Thank you very much. You You take care. You bet. Bye bye. So, Adam, I must commend you. Must be in your DNA. So, take care, my friends, and uh, stay free. We're going to now listen to the Chris Ann Hall show and uh, Assange's uh, Freedom of the Press. So, enjoy Chris Ann for the rest of the night. Take care. Stay free. Attention Patriots, this is 